Good morning. For the past seven weeks, we have been reminded that the Proverbs paint for us a picture of the reality that in everything we have a choice. That in the river of life, there are two competing currents, wisdom and foolishness, and that we are faced daily with the sobering reality that for every good or godly behavior or decision that we might make, there is a counter move, another option. James addressed these two currents in his epistle, calling both, strangely enough, wisdom, but differentiating between the two, calling one the wisdom of God and the other the wisdom of the current age. The two do not and cannot coexist. They are fundamentally different in nature from one another, and they hold fundamentally different outcomes for those who choose either option. And so, as we decide which type of wisdom we will employ as we approach our words and our work, our relationships or our habits as we've heard about these past many weeks, I think it would be to our advantage to pause and to recognize that in all things, we have a choice. And that choice will determine much of what the next leg of our journey will hold. So the question then for many of us as we stand at that fork in the road or that bend in the river as may be more applicable to this series is where do we learn about this wisdom and folly that the Proverbs teach? Where is a person's sense of right and wrong established? How does a person distinguish right from wrong in the first place? And what entity or institution in today's world has the greatest influence in terms of directing us toward the current which will guide us into our future path? Let's face it, there are influences all around us. The media desire to enlighten us with particular angles on current events or more recently on politics. Peers offer us their experiences and their opinions on a daily basis, whether through face-to-face -face contact or through social media. So that heaps on another layer of perspective. Educational institutions teach to their specific agendas or perspectives. And all the while, the internet offers us exhaustive commentary on any curiosity that we could ever have. So the list is comprehensive, and each of these entities is constantly attempting to make deposits into us, hoping to grow in their influence over us. And yet of all of these inputs, social scientists still tell us today in the 21st century that the most significant influence in shaping us and in developing our moral compass or our sense of wisdom and foolishness is the family. I find this curious given our contemporary culture and the fact that it's harder than ever in this day and age to describe what a family is because there are so many varieties all around us. And yet, family was God's original plan for communion with himself and with one another. Genesis tells us that God created the heavens and the earth and then he desired to share it, so he created Adam whom he gave life and breath to and offered to share the riches of his creation. And then seeing that it wasn't good for Adam to live alone, he created Eve, desiring to give Adam a partner and someone else to share the riches of creation with and to walk alongside throughout his days in the garden. Genesis 2 verse 24 gives us the account of the first family, if you will, it says, man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Poof, instant family, all of God's design. 
And family is such an interesting thing, isn't it? It's true what they say that we don't get to choose the family into which we are born. And yet that association, the one that connects us to our families, can often be so strong. We sometimes label or judge people before we even know them based solely on their familial association. So in this country, when we hear of a Kennedy, we think of someone who is politically influential or wealthy. If you tell me your last name is Gates, I might assume that you're good with computers or a philanthropist at heart. And if your last name is Manning, I don't want to have a conversation with you at all. I would just like you to make your way to the football field. Because family is a defining attribute. But just as good can be attributed to us by our families, so can bad. Think Kardashian. And so greater than any mere name association, it's important for us to recognize that family is the place where our sense of wisdom and folly is established as a child or an adolescent, and it's the place where we sow that wisdom or folly as an adult. The family is, as some people have noted, the haven of habits or the place where we are most impressed upon and shaped spiritually and emotionally and behaviorally. Now, families are not, of course, just the communities into which we are born. Some of us were adopted into a family that today we claim as our own. Others of us married into a family. 25 years ago, I did not claim the Vermilia clan as my own, but I certainly do so today. And even beyond the people that we live under a roof with, sometimes we claim family as those that we choose to purposefully and intimately live lives with. I think there's a Hallmark card sl a slogan that says something like, friends are the families we choose. But that's certainly true for many of us. And for others of us, we cling deeply to the family of God that is ours here in the church. We heard that on the video to some degree. So whatever variety or varieties of family you might claim, research shows us that our language, our sense of empathy, our career path, and even our sense of self-worth is most greatly influenced by those with whom we do life with, our families. But this is true for better or for worse because the family is the place where we develop our sense of identity and our values and our priorities in life. And it is so often the factor which determines what our future will look like. So knowing the impact that the family has on a person's sense of the wise or the foolish, I think it's interesting to look at the, the book of Proverbs in a bit of its historical context this morning. You see, some scholars believe that the Proverbs were originally organized and had the greatest influence in the life of Israel during the time of the Diaspora, these were the years following the destruction of the temple when Israel was in exile. They were scattered throughout the Middle East, and the Jewish people moved from being concerned with educating their priests to educating their people in the ways of God. Their community was disbanded. Their temple was gone, and so this is the way that they would pass along their heritage and their faith. They hoped that by making deposits into the next generation, that group would hold on to what they believed and would be the group that would see their nation restored. And it was during this time, interestingly enough, that the family of all things emerged as the center of Israel's educational system. Mothers were the primary educators of their children and the home became the place where the wisdom of God was taught and dispersed. 
So the Proverbs then became a curriculum of sorts. They juxtaposed the wise ways of God with the foolish ways of this world. They were accessible, written in plain, straightforward language that could be grasped and remembered and hopefully employed in the lives of their people. Now, if you have been reading along with the Proverbs, as I have been during this series, you might have found, as I have, that I'll be reading along and suddenly stop and think, didn't I just read that? There's a lot of repetition from verse to verse and chapter to chapter, and this isn't a mistake, because in the spirit of being instructive, the repetitive nature of the Proverbs was designed to foster learning to help us digest those messages of wisdom and foolishness that the authors were attempting to drive home. So if you think about the way a child learns to read or to write, or the way you might learn to play a song on the piano or strategize how to run a race, you know that key, the key to that is so often repetition. Doing or seeing or hearing something over and over and over again until it becomes second nature. When my children were little, I used to cringe when I would ask them what video they wanted to watch or what song they wanted to listen to next because 99.9% of the time, I could tell you what they were going to say. Whatever video we last watched or whatever song we last listened to, and I couldn't figure out why they weren't getting sick of these characters or these lyrics because I was. But you see, they were learning. And over time, as they kept watching or listening, they soon began to master the information in those mediums. They were internalizing them and then would get to the place where they could recite them to others. Numbers and shapes and colors and rhymes. And that, interestingly enough, is the method of the Proverbs. They point out the wise ways of God and the foolish ways of the world over and over again, contrasting right from wrong in multiple ways, hoping that such repetition will help us readers have a clear sense of how God desires for us to live. And so today, the home may or may not be the center of a person's formal education, as it was during this season in the life of Israel's history. But the family, in any of the forms we mentioned earlier, is still the place where our sense of wisdom and folly is conceived and the place that it is most significantly developed over the course of our lifetime. So the good news for us is that the Proverbs not only give us general principles of wisdom and foolishness, as we've heard about these past seven weeks, but they also describe for us the ways of the wise and the foolish family. And so this is what I want us to do this morning, and I realize this isn't our normal practice around here, but humor me and play along. Find a piece of paper, your bulletin, your current series booklets, there's some journal pages in there, maybe a shopping list that you stuffed in the side of your purse, whatever the case is. Find a blank spot on your paper, and I want to ask you to draw a line down the center of the paper, up and down, vertical, two columns. The top of the left side of that paper, I want you to write the word wise. And at the top of the right column, I want you to write the word foolishness or foolish. Wise, foolish, wisdom, foolishness. Label them two that way, okay? And here's what I want us to do. This morning as we look at some of the verses of Proverbs which address the wise and foolish ways of the family, I want you to do a bit of personal assessment and self-reflection. When you hear or think of something you're doing that fits in that wise category, write it down. Give yourself a, a small pat on the back or a nod of encouragement that with God's help, 
you are finding yourself immersed in that wise current. But the flip side, of course, is if you think of something you're doing that fits more into the foolish category, write that down as well, as painful as it might be, because it's when we allow God's word to permeate us, we can be changed. And the desire this morning is that we learn from God's word how we can all be a part of shepherding and leading and guiding wise families. So for starters, the Proverbs tell us that wise families are led by parents or elders who exemplify wisdom for their youth. In other words, these wise family leaders have a sense that someone younger or less experienced or dependent upon them in some way is always watching always listening, always learning from them, and that their practices and their behaviors will be replicated in the decisions and the behaviors of someone else. This is actually the very voice of the Proverbs themselves, from the older and wiser person to the young. We heard it read earlier, but look at Proverbs 6, verses 20 and 21. My son, obey your father's commands and don't neglect your mother's instruction. Keep their words always in your heart. Tie them around your neck. There's an interesting theme that runs throughout many of these verses like this one, and that is an assumption that the elders of the family will model for their young the way of the wise. That the very nature of the position of parent or grandparent, big brother, big sister, any familial leader that you can identify with will be honorable and worthy of being followed. And how often is this not the case? How often do we model for our young something other than righteousness or goodness? Unfaithfulness, hatred, deceit, abandonment. You might be thinking, whoa, those are kind of heavy. You're right, so let's think of more everyday examples. How about the person who leaves a miserable tip on the table hoping to save themselves a few bucks at the expense of the waiter or the waitress? What example is that setting? Or the person who chucks trash out the window as they're driving down the street figuring somebody else will get that later on? How about the person who has an overcompetitive spirit that they lose control of at the high school football game and they begin spewing venom at the referee for the call that was made in front of all of these youth and young people? Some of those seem more ridiculous than others, but maybe not when we realize that we are constantly being watched, that there are always those learning from our example, those who are absorbing our foolish choices and decisions and demonstrating uh, what we have, have demonstrated, that they are loaded with the potential to replicate our behavior in the future. I will never forget the first time I sent my three-year-old daughter, my sweet little precious innocent toddler, to her first real time out. We're talking in her room, door shut, nobody else in there by herself. I wasn't messing around. But I wanted her to understand right from wrong and to get the message through clearly. And so I put her in there for 10 minutes, which of course to a three-year-old is an eternity. And I sat outside the door as she sobbed and wailed and blubbered, feeling as though she had disappointed her mother in some irreparable way. And after 10 minutes, I slipped into the room and I spent 10 more minutes trying to calm her down and get her breathing back into normal pattern. And she continued to snivel and snort as I told her that while I loved her very much, I could not allow her to use words that were unkind and not honoring to God, no matter how frustrated she was. 
And she very sincerely looked at me, and she apologized quickly, saying, I'm very sorry, Mama. I only said quap because you say quap. <laughs> In an instant, my own foolish behavior was brought to light, and I was sobered, realizing that it was being replicated in my little person. And this happens all the time, does it not? We see the very best and the worst of ourselves in those that we lead and shepherd. We can often remember the first time or the situation that surrounded the first time when we heard our parents, our mother or our father's voice come out of our own mouths saying something that we heard as a child and we swore we would never say as an adult. My husband recalls detesting being given the rationale of because I said so by his parents when he was a kid. And yet I tell you, it wasn't very far into our parenting journey that one of the kids said, why? And he said, because I said so. I was kind of an impatient child. I would get in a hurry and want to get through things. And my mom, every single time, would say to me, Emily, don't wish your life away. I hated hearing that. But I can't tell you how many times in my adult life I've caught myself looking at a young person that I'm coaching or teaching and those words come out of my mouth. That sage wisdom is passed along to others because you see both wisdom and folly have the potential to be replicated. And the Proverbs remind us that wise families are led by elders who exemplify the ways of God for their young, while foolish families are led by those who forget the example their lives are setting. So how are you doing? Are you mindful of those who are younger or less experienced than you? Are you exemplifying the wisdom of God for your family through your words and your actions and your deeds? Proverbs also tell us that wise families are those who intentionally engage with one another. In 2014, the National Science Foundation reported that more Americans than ever before claimed to be lonely. They figured this out in a really big study. They did like 1,500 face-to-face -face interviews throughout the country, and in over a quarter of those interviewed, they found that people reported feeling disconnected from others or generally lonely in life. And this wasn't a study done with college students who are living away from home or with vagabonds or jet setters. These were just everyday people from various walks of life, of various ages, various demographics and professions, and almost all of whom in their registration form claimed to be a part of some type of family. So the question kind of begs to be asked, if a person identifies themselves as a member of a family, but then also reports that they have no one in life with whom to share their trials and their triumphs, how engaged can their families really be? And therein lies the difference between the wise and the foolish family, according to the Proverbs. Wise families, we are told, are generous with offering their time and attention to one another. They intentionally engage with each other for one another's benefit, and they prioritize doing so. Chapter 3 says, don't withhold good from those who deserve it when it is within your power to act. Don't say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow, when you now have it with you. Have you ever noticed that there's never really a convenient time to give your undivided attention to somebody else? <laughs> How easy it is to say, I'll be there in a minute. 
Or, yeah, we'll get to that soon. Because there's always something else. There's always your job or your home or your health. The list is endless, but there is always something that's time sensitive and urgent and that somebody else will tell you is of the highest priority for this reason or for that. And sadly, it seems that we are more likely to put our family members or those closest to us on hold more than any other entity in our lives because we assume that they'll wait for us that they'll still be there when all of the rest of life settles down, that when we're finished giving our time and our attention to the people or the things in our lives that hold the potential to advance our causes or our career or who provide us with relief or who indulge us in some way we feel we deserve, then we'll come back to our families. Think about all of the things that take away from your ability to engage with those you care about the most. Long days at work, the group of peers you so desperately want to impress or be accepted by, your 10 social media accounts that need to be managed, even the American in vogue ideal that independence serves as proof that you've arrived in this world. Some of those seem more noble than others, but they all serve as a temptation for each of us to divert attention away from our families. And yet here again, it's interesting to note that the Proverbs tell us that intentional engagement is a hallmark of the proverbially wise family. The writer says, when you walk, your elders will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. In other words, they'll be there. They'll be present and attentive so strong leaders and parents and wise elders and shepherds will schedule intentional family time, family dinners and game nights. They'll show up to events that matter to you and they'll make time when you just need some attention or you need help with homework or you just wanna build a model plane. But the Proverbs also help us to understand that intentional engagement sometimes involves discipline. That when our young walk away from the wisdom of God, we will correct them, not in an impatient or an impulsive manner, but in a way that is constructive and that demonstrates how much we love them and our desire to see their course corrected for their own good and for the good of the family unit. So go back to that list. Ask yourselves again, how are you doing? Am I being attentive and available to those that I'm being given to shepherd? Is my family intentional about setting aside time focusing on one another? Am I intentional about teaching and guiding and correcting my family and looking out for the ways that we serve one another and our best interests? Or are we foolishly missing the opportunity to engage with one another and potentially jeopardizing the future of our relationship? Wise families exemplify the wisdom of God to their young. They engage with one another intentionally. And the Proverbs also tell us that wise families extend themselves into the future. I read this week that the National Center for Health claims that the average lifespan of an American today is 79 years old. I looked it up three times because I didn't believe it. Because I thought in my head somewhere, the average American lifespan surely was something more like 95 or 100 years old, right? 79 is significant, 
It means I'm over the halfway mark. It means some of you are above average and the rest of you are approaching one of those points quickly, I assure you. The point is this, 79 years is not that long of a time span. And yet I think it's easy for us to sometimes view the river of life as one which only spans one person's time here on earth. And yet the Proverbs remind us that this river and the currents which flow through it are far longer and far greater reaching than just one generation. And that God uses the family as the conduit by which wisdom or folly will flow into the future. Look at chapter 20, verse 7. The godly walk with integrity. Blessed are their children who follow them. Here's another assumption. And that is that the family will leave something for those who come behind them. That there can be a blessing or a curse that lives beyond a single generation, one that is imparted to their descendants. And far too often I fear, especially in our North American culture of immediacy and instantaneous results, that we can dismiss or ignore altogether the reality that the actions of our families today will have great potential to affect the generations to come. I read a story recently about a couple by the name of Mark and Ruth Bradman. They're from Michigan. And uh, they have three daughters, all whom are married and who have children themselves. Uh, Mark is a retired automobile employee, industry employee, and Ruth is a retired elementary school teacher. Throughout their life together, they had a dream of building a home for their family. And so when their girls were young and they would put them to bed at night, Mark and Ruth would often slip downstairs and they would talk for hours about the details of the home they wanted to build. They would sketch out pictures of what each room would look like. During their 30s, Mark received a number of promotions in his job and his friends, knowing about the dream of the home, would come to him with each promotion and say, are you gonna do it now? Are you gonna build that home? And each time throughout that decade, Mark would simply smile and say, not just yet. Most assume that Mark and Ruth were just dragging their feet, that they didn't really know what they wanted to build yet, or that they were a little squeamish about unstable mortgage rates. But none of that was actually true. And the friends kind of started to lose interest in the dream as their girls got older, they graduated from high school, they moved off to college. The friends just assumed they had given up on the dream that there was no point in building a house now that their nest was slowly emptying. And then at the age of 70, the Bradmen signed the paperwork and they hired a contractor to build the dream home that they had designed some 40 years earlier. Their friends were kind of astonished. They thought, why did they wait so long? They no longer have children at home. It's just the two of them, so what's the point? And the home was completed, and the Bradmans invited their friends over to visit and to see the home. And as they toured the rooms and the hallways, one friend pulled them aside and says, Guys, this is beautiful. But for the life of me, I can't figure out why you waited so long. You hardly have any life left to live in this place. You should have done this like 30 years ago. And in their very gracious way, they smiled, and Mark replied, saying, Well, I guess that's all in how you look at things. We wanted to build this house for our family. We didn't want to cut any corners or have any outstanding debts for our grandkids who might live here one day. And even if they don't choose to live here, this will be someone's home. 
And so we just felt like we wanted to wait until we could build it with the best materials so that it would be the best that it could possibly be for us and for our grandkids and for whoever might live here 100 years from now. It's simply a way that we could invest ourselves into the future. It's quite a thing to consider the reality that the decisions that we make today will impact those who come after us, those that we will never know, our great, great, great grandchildren, and that the current we choose to place ourselves within now will have significant and lasting ramifications on the current that the future generations of our families might find themselves in in the future. That we have the opportunity, like Mark and Ruth, to sow wisdom or foolishness for the generations to come. And so knowing this, I've been forced to ask myself some questions this week. How does this knowledge change my course of action? How will my choice to honor God today with my words impact the next generation? How will the way I steward the things God has given me now impact the church 100 years from now? And how will my actions or behaviors in 2016 impact what is seen as normative for the world that my great-grandchildren will live in long after I'm gone? I think that these are huge questions, and I don't think that they're ones that we are conditioned to ask ourselves in our current culture. And yet the proverbially wise family is one that keeps these questions in mind and recognizes its role in extending itself into the future. Because if the family is the place where wisdom and folly are learned, the place where we receive our promptings to enter either one current or the other, then we should constantly be assessing the practices and the values of our families and asking ourselves if they reflect wisdom or foolishness. So check yourself. Are you exemplifying the wisdom of God for those younger than you? Are you intentionally engaging with those you love? And are you being purposeful in extending your family into the future? Because these are the ways of wise families, according to the Proverbs. So take a look at your list. And whether you feel encouraged or discouraged this morning, let me remind you that by God's grace, we are always just one decision away from immersing ourselves in a different current. That today you have been given the opportunity to make choices that will impact not only the family that you currently are a part of, but your family in the generations to come.